Well, we're moving forward in our study through the book of Genesis, uh, and this morning we're going to come to chapter 4, and then, uh, if time allows, on to chapter 5 as well. Chapter 4, we look at the second murder. The second murder. For a lot of people, they think it's the first murder, and often you'll, you'll find commentaries will talk about the first murder and so on. But it's not, it's the second. What was the first murder? Who was the first murderer? The devil. The first murder was Adam, Eve. It, it was it was murder because Satan intentionally deceived them, knowing that the punishment for their rebellion against God would be death. That was the first murder. He's a, a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. And so we're going to see Satan now manipulate situations again to bring about the second murder. Before we jump to that, though, just the outline of Genesis itself. The first 11 chapters really deal with the, the creation, the beginning of everything. Obviously, we're going to be looking at the fall of man. Uh, also, we looked at the fall of man last week, Cain and Abel today, uh, and then onto the genealogy of Noah. And then, really, we've got the floods of the Tower of Babel, which just tell us what the early world was like. Uh, and we see a lot of interesting things that come out through that. The second part of the book, we start to get into a family. This is the family of Abraham, the, the family we later come to know as Israel. And we'll talk a lot when we get there, but God's plan was to have this nation through whom the seed of the woman that we looked at last week, Genesis 3.15, is promised Messiah, the Savior, the one who would come, the offspring of woman, the one who would be the Savior of the world. Well, God brings his family into being as protection, as a covering to ensure the safe delivery the safe arrival of the seed and that's confirmed to us in revelation 12 we'll look more when we get to genesis 12 uh, as some of those things uh, but we obviously then look at the life of abraham isaac jacob and then finally joseph and that's really the second section of the book if you were to break it into those simple breaks um this morning before we jump into chapter four though i just want to just cast our minds back to what we were saying last week uh, we read in genesis 3 verse 20 that adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, that's true, obviously, in a biological sense, but there is a spiritual component to this. Because of the fact that we have the seed of the woman, in one sense, that there's a spiritual element that she's the the mother of all those who would later be born again. Because through Eve, and, and ultimately their faithfulness, and then we see coming all the way down this line that God had chosen, the faithfulness of those individuals, right the way down to Mary, this is a young girl who was obedient to God's will for her life. You know, these are just fallen human beings, but God chose them for an extraordinary part of his plan. We're also told that unto Adam and also his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. You know, and in this we see the first blood sacrifice. There's, there's two animals had to die. And, of course, God had said to Adam and to Eve that if they were to eat of the fruit, or to Adam, and Adam should have told his wife, as we said, but that, that if they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Now, spiritually, yes, they died instantly. That, that clothing of light, the Shekinah glory that had covered them, disappears and goes. And they realize, they recognize immediately as a result of that they're naked. But then God clothes them, and it's not just to cover their nakedness, but it's that spiritual element that was suddenly missing in their lives. And we find that God here is the one that effectively puts these two animals, we're not told what they are, but I would suspect probably they were lambs, and takes their skins and clothes Adam and Eve in them. And Adam and Eve obviously have this understanding 
of sacrifice. They recognize that God is the one who is allowing them to live because of the death of an innocent substitute. And they see this model played out. And we're not sold specifically, but I get the impression from the text that Adam and Eve probably even witnessed this event to bring home to them that actually they were the ones whose lives should be ended. The wrath of God should have come upon them. Instead, the wrath of God comes upon these innocent animals. And their blood is shed to atone for sin. In Leviticus 17.11, we're told that it's by the shedding of innocent blood that they will be covered. It's the blood that makes atonement for sin. About the whole book of Leviticus uh, deals with this theme. You know, and of course what Adam and Eve had tried to do, we looked at this, was to cover themselves. They've made these fig leaves. And that was just an attempt to get right with God, to hide their own shame, to hide their own nakedness, to make themselves acceptable to God. They didn't want to present themselves to God as they were, so they wanted to cover themselves. I mean, I don't think that the whole idea of them covering themselves with leaves was on account of them seeing each other. I don't think that was the issue. There was nobody else in the world at that time, so it wasn't as if they were worried about any other people seeing them. This was about them covering themselves before God. You know, sin does that. It leaves us very exposed and feeling guilty. And we try to find a way to cover it. And, you know, we've talked about this. We mentioned this last week. But there are many things that people do to try and cover their sin. You know, and there's lots of good things that people will try and do, but that's just our, they're just fig leaves. They don't atone for sin. The only thing that atone for their sin, and this is the, the object lesson that God gives them with the shedding of these, the blood of these animals, is that it takes shed blood. And ultimately that points towards the cross, where the Son of God gave his life. His blood was shed to pay for all of our iniquity. And now, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, not, not, the, the, the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, it was an atonement, but it could never purge the conscience. Whereas what Christ does is purge our conscience too. Knowing that God's justice has been met, but so is his mercy. There's an interesting verse we read at the end of this chapter, chapter 3, again we were looking at last week, and it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And so he drove the man out, sorry, he drove out the man, and placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Nothing wrong with that, we're quite happy with that, but there's a very interesting thing here because that word placed, so he drove out the man and he placed. The word actually in the Hebrew is a word shakan, 89 times it's translated as dwelt. There's only one other occasion this word is translated placed and that's in the book of Psalms. And even there, arguably we could say that dwelt is a better translation. And that would read, so he drove out the man and he dwelt at the east of the Garden of Eden. And that's just an interesting just thought there. Uh, particularly if you want to look at the tabernacle and the, the east side of the tabernacle, was, we see 
All sorts of interesting things come out of this. It was the entrance in to the tabernacle. Interesting, isn't it? The way we, these models and things fit. The Targum, or Jerusalem Targum, uh, just an old Jewish translation, had, has it translated this way. God dwelt east of the Garden of Eden, between the cherubim, as a tongue of fire to keep open the way to the tree. Now this is kind of tradition that's been passed down and so on. So it's not a direct translation necessarily, but it's an interesting thought. Because there's the implication here that God does something at this particular point in the, or this particular place in Eden. Now, what's interesting about this is if we look at the Ark of the Covenant, we'll look at it in a minute, we find these two cherubims that sit above the mercy seat. Seemingly, what we have here is a place of sacrifice. It, again, let me just, that, that verse from the Targum says, God dwell east of the Garden of Eden between the cherubim as a tongue of fire to keep open the way to the tree of life. See, God didn't want to prohibit man getting back to him. He wanted to make a way. And what's interesting is that the early Christians weren't called Christians to start with. They were just called those who followed the way. It's interesting, you look at the book of Acts. Jeff's been doing a, a study through the book of Acts. But it's actually, you go through, and all the way through the early church, there's this reference to the way. Even the the the, the opposition, the, the leaders of the, the Romans, the Jews, refer to the Christians as those that follow the way. And it is the way. It's the only way. It's the only way back to God. Again, you look at that, Cherub, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is the model of it there. And you have these cherubim that sit either side. Once again, that entrance to the tabernacle on the east side. place where they would go in and they would offer sacrifices to God to atone for sin. And I suspect that what's going on here is that Adam would have then come back to this place to offer up sacrifices as well. So we read into, into Genesis chapter 4 now, we carry on, and it says, And Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Interesting, there's lots we can bring out here. First of all, this is the King James way of phrasing and Adam knew his wife. He's talking, of course, of sexual intimacy. It's interesting, of course, that, that today there's a lot of people indulge in sexual relationships without knowing each other. It's a very casual thing as far as the world is concerned. That's not the way God intended, obviously. And there should be this, this union, this unity that God intended. You know, again, we saw already that God's intention through marriage is that man and woman would come back together, would be joined as one. It's a very special thing. The world is just twisted and messed up. Now, there is an interesting suggestion by some scholars here that maybe... Eve had already born children prior to this, and she may have born girls first, because she seems to be very excited because this statement, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now it could be, that's a possibility, that maybe she'd already had some girls first, or it could simply be that she knew this, pro- this promise that God had given her back in Genesis 3.15, that the seed was going to be coming through her, this one who was going to set things straight. And maybe... She thought this child that she's born was the one. In fact, I'm quite certain that Satan thought this child was the one. And we read 
But actually, bear Cain. Now, Cain clearly is the firstborn. It's interesting, he's the firstborn and he's the one that Satan gets at straight away. But she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And then we thought, and she again bare his brother Abel. Now, there's a suggestion also here that these were twins, because we only have one conception and two births. If you have one conception and two births, that makes twins. So it's just a, it's a possibility. I don't need to make doctrine out of it, but it's just interesting. But we read that she bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Not one any better than the other. They both end up in different occupations. In Luke chapter 11, we read this. Therefore also, said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them shall they slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel, and we're going to obviously look at this in a second, unto the blood, blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. What's interesting here is that Jesus refers to Abel as a prophet. It, it, why, why is Abel class? I mean, we've got no recorded words of Abel. So in what way is Abel a prophet? Well, I think in as much as the fact that he not only looked after sheep, but we'll see that he offers a lamb as a sacrifice. You see, he recognized, and we'll see in a moment, that it wasn't his works that would set him right with God. It was the shed blood of a sacrifice. And we'll see that come out in a moment. And I think in that way, Abel no doubt had learned from Adam, his father, and these things had been passed on to them. You know, you can kind of imagine this this family, there's Adam and his Eve, maybe other children around, there's certainly Cain and Abel, their first boys. And they're out playing, and you know, there's all sorts of interesting things we found in the fossil record of the creatures that used to inhabit the world. One thing I, I know, last time I taught this, uh, I'd uh, seen a documentary, uh, and there's a, a giant sloth, um, the they discovered that used to exist. They were about the size of an elephant, sloth, sloth, whatever you prefer there. Um, but the size of an elephant. And you can just imagine Cain and Abel going out and, and playing with these things and bringing it home to show mum, mum, look what I've got. It's like, that's very nice, dear. Yeah, as mums do. And then wanting to show Adam. Say, dad, dad, look what we've got. And Adam, yeah, okay, Nice. And you can imagine them going to, to Eve and saying, what's the matter with Dad? He's the most miserable man on the whole earth. Because there wasn't that many of them, of course. But And Eve, no doubt, would have said, sons, you've got to realize that your dad remembers what it was like on the other side. Your dad remembers what it was like when we were clothed in light, clothed in the glory of God before all of this before you had to go out and till the ground and all these things. You know, and no doubt these boys have been told about this blood sacrifice. It's very clear from the fact that Abel offers this sacrifice himself. And again, you just imagine Adam just walking off with a lamb back to that entrance to the Garden of Eden where the cherubim dwelt. Maybe the boys could hear in the distance the bleating of a lamb and then suddenly silence. And then Adam would come back a short while later with that look of peace. Maybe a splattering of blood on him. 
the reality that that blood has atoned for sin. You know, we, we've got so accustomed to sin, so used to sin, we forget about these things. I mean, maybe, Lord willing, we'll get into some point in future a study of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a very bloodthirsty book. A lot of people, if you read it through, it's kind of quite hard going. But you may be surprised that a number of scholars see Leviticus as their favorite book in the Bible. Spurgeon is one of those. And there's a number of others. I think J. Vernon McGee also had the view that Leviticus was his favorite book because it just brings home the reality of sin, the horror, the, the horrific nature of sin and the cost to atone for it. We've come so accustomed to it, living in a world that is so full of sin. So we read, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, we don't know whether or not they brought previous offerings. Maybe Cain had brought other offerings in the past. Maybe he brought a blood sacrifice. But on this occasion, he decides to bring the fruit of the ground. Now, I've got no doubt that he'd worked really hard for this. You know, he'd planted, he'd waited, he'd seen these things grow. He'd kind of reaped a, a crop of whatever it was he'd been planting. And he was no doubt really pleased with this. So he brings the best that he has to God. And we read in Abel, he also brought the first thing of the flock, and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Now we're going to see that this really riles Cain. The Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. You see, it was all about the offering, not the work that had gone into it. Now, there's, do you notice something here? There's a clue in verse 4 here or something deeper. Because he doesn't just bring an animal, he brings of the firstlings of his flock. Now, this is way before we get to Exodus 12, where they were to take the first of their flock to take a lamb and offer it as a sacrifice, what becomes the Passover. This is something that they've obviously been passed down, it has been shown to them by, by the Lord, to Adam and passed down to his children. The other thing that's interesting is, we're told, and of the fat thereof. Why does it mention that? Well, you get to Leviticus. Let's just turn to Leviticus. Let's go to chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, I haven't got the slides, but we'll just turn there and have a quick look. Go to Leviticus chapter 4, and we have detailed for us the sin offering. I'm just going to read the first uh, few verses or so. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before the Lord. That whole laying on of hands is all about identifying. It's being identified with this particular animal whose blood is to be shed. It makes it far more real. You know, I remember, just hold, we'll come back to that in a second. I remember hearing a story of um, Bob Colnuke, 
Um, so you may have heard of Bob Cornuke. Uh, he's a friend of Chuck Misler's. He's been out to uh, Mount Sinai, the real Mount Sinai, or say Jabal El Laws, which is the real Mount Sinai, biblically, in Arabia. And they've been out there for a couple of days, and um, their supply vehicles had got delayed getting to them. So they've been a couple of days without food. But they had some Bedouins with them that were kind of helping them navigate the terrain and so on. And they needed to eat something. And so they had some sheep. And so the Bedouins said, well, let's just kill a sheep and we'll, we'll cook it and we'll eat it. And so they gave Bob Cornute the knife. And he's like, well, what do I do with this? And he, he couldn't do it. He couldn't go through with it. So he gave it back to one of the Bedouins and they just took this lamb and they just slit the throat. And this lamb just died quite, I say peacefully, but just, just died. And he said it really brought home to him the reality of that sacrifice. You know, we get, again, so comfortable with these things that we don't tend to think through the cost of these things. But that laying on of hands, it was being identified with this animal whose blood was being shed in place of yours. You know, that whole idea, by the way, of laying on of hands carries through into the New Testament. And there's, there's scriptures, and we, we can some other time we'll look at this. But the whole idea of laying on of hands, when you lay your hands upon a person, you're identifying with them. It's the same idea. You are partnering with them in the ministry that they are going off to do or whatever. And that's why we're told not to lay hands on somebody hastily. Verse 4. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, sorry, verse 5, we carry on. Uh, and the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all of the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covers the inwards, and all the fat is upon uh, that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the caul above the liver, where the kidneys, uh, it he shall take away. As it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offering, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar of burnt offering, and so on. It speaks a lot there about the fat. Why? Well, because the fat represents the best of this creature. That is what's being offered up to the Lord. But it's not the best of our work. It's not the best of our offering. But going back to the text here in Genesis, Abel wasn't just offering up a lamb because he looked after sheep. He's actually being obedient to God. He's offering of the firstlings of his flock, and he's offering the fat of it. This is way before we get to Leviticus. We go on and we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that by faith, see there you go, that's the key here, it's by faith that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. How was Abel righteous? Not because of anything he had or could do, but because of this sacrifice, because of the shed blood. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead yet speaketh. And he does speak, even to us now, of the faith in the sacrifice that was offered on behalf of us. Of course, pointing ultimately to Jesus. 
Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Going back into the text, we carry on the second part of that verse. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain, to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. You know what that's like, don't you? When somebody's unhappy, and you can see it in their face. You know, we have a, a funny word to express when we're not happy. The word is fine. You know, how are you? Fine. And you know, that's just, just just kind of code for, no, I'm not very happy, but don't ask me anymore. It's okay. Well, Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. The crazy thing is, he's not happy with God. Because God accepts the offering, accepts this blood sacrifice. But the fruit of Cain's work, his good works... God says, I'm sorry, Cain, that's not going to do it. You see, the problem here is that Cain tried to go to God on his terms. He tried to offer that which he wanted to offer. It's not the way it works. God sets the rules, he sets the terms. But the question is, how did they know whether their offerings were accepted or not? Interesting question, isn't it? How was it that Cain was aware that the Lord was pleased and had respect unto Abel in his offering. But for some reason, there was obviously a, a, a tangible reason why Cain knew that God wasn't happy with his. Well, I think probably what we see here is what we see a number of times in Scripture. And that is when God is pleased with an offering, with a sacrifice. He demonstrates it by accepting by fire from heaven. We see it with Moses and Aaron in Leviticus 9.24. The Lord sends down fire from heaven to consume the offering. God demonstrates that he's pleased with it. We see the same with Gideon in Judges 6.21. Samson's parents, you may remember, they go and get this offering, they bring it back, they, they dress it and everything else is all ready, and then fire comes down and consumes the offering. It's in Judges 13.20. Elijah does the same in 1 Kings 1838, you know, on top of Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal have been trying all day and they can't get their God to do anything because he doesn't exist. But Elijah then, not only gets his offering, he douses it three times in water and then God answers by fire. And everybody, all the Jews that are there, all little Israel that are there, realize that God is God. And Elijah challenges them. If God is the Lord, then serve him. David also we see in First Chronicles twenty one twenty six, his offering is accepted by the Lord by fire. And then Solomon also, dedication we see in two Chronicles seven one, again accepted by fire. Now there's a list of six. That should trouble you if you've looked at the details and the way scripture is so precise. Because God always tends to work in sevens. So what is the seventh? Well, may I propose that the seventh one is the one that we're looking at here. And this is the one where God accepted Abel's offering by fire. And Cain's is left there. Cain walks away from this scene very unhappy. We read verse 6, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over it. That 
the shell B here is actually just inserted by the translators for readability. It's really an unto the desire. It's speaking of sin, the way sin grabs us and takes hold of us, and, and that becomes our desire. And we become a slave, a servant to sin. Again, notice here, the Lord says unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? He hasn't, apart from this sacrifice issue, he hasn't sinned, he hasn't done anything to Abel yet. I mean, no doubt God knows already what Cain's starting to think. But notice what God does here. He's reaching out, he's giving Cain an opportunity. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that God will make a way of escape when temptations come. Cain here is clearly tempted because of the circumstance. But God reaches out to him beforehand. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? You remember we said before, when God asks a question, it's not because he's lacking information, it's not because God needs help. You know, when God asks us questions, and he does ask us questions, it's not because... He's struggling a little and wants us to help. It's because he wants us to think. Where is Abel, thy brother? Cain said, and he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yeah, in a sense you are. We're all responsible for each other. We're accountable to each other, and ultimately we're accountable to God. And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. Not a, a good outcome for Cain. The ground is already cursed and now doubly cursed as far as Cain is concerned. Hebrews 12.24 speaks of this blood of Abel speaking. He says unto Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Abel does indeed speak. It is a testimony of, again, God's grace, God's faithfulness, but also of the, the horror and the consequences of sin. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Don't we all complain? You know, isn't that the question that we so often hear? We'll ask that question again in a moment, but... Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from the face, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that finds me shall slay me. Well, that's Cain's concern. You know, this is that question that so many people ask so often. And this is the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's what Cain's asking. This isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Why do Bad things happen to good people. Well, that only happened once, and he volunteered for it. You see, the Bible tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way, they altogether become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 Paul tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there is no good people. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of God's wrath and judgment. But because of his great love, we can become recipients of his amazing grace. Because of the cross. Because of Jesus. Because of the shed blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, 
Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should be killed. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So Cain now is effectively sent away. Some of you visit the land of Nod, often halfway through a Sunday morning. Um, but this is where Cain ends up going. Just interesting what we see here. See, both Cain and Abel came from the same parents. You know, they were both fallen. Neither of them had an advantage over the other. Both were born outside of Eden. But so in that sense, they were judicially alienated from God. But the different basis here is that Cain offers according to his own works versus effectively what Abel is doing, relying on the shed blood of an innocent substitute, figuring the completed work of Christ. You see, death was required. And ultimately, God would provide that ultimate sacrifice. There's interesting typology though. There's over, I think, about 30 different ways that Abel is also prophetically a a, a kind of a a prefiguring of Jesus. Abel was a shepherd. Jesus, we're told, was the good shepherd. Abel gave an offering. John 10 speaks that Jesus himself would offer himself. Abel was hated by his brother. Jesus hated by his brethren. Abel was slain as an enemy. So was Jesus. Abel's blood cries out is that we read the same about Jesus' blood speaking. Abel again offered the first thing of the flock. First Peter tells us that Jesus was just that. And Abel also receives this witness and this testimony. In this case, God testifies. But for Jesus, the centurion, Satan himself, Judas, all make reference to the fact of Jesus' innocence and who he was, the Son of God. It's interesting parallels we see. Let's just move on. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived. And people say, where did Cain get his wife? Why are you so bothered about another man's wife is the question. The reality here is that Adam and Eve would have had other children. Oh, and then people say, oh, but then that's incest. No, it's not. Not until we get to the time of the law and then God puts that rule in. But at this point, it wasn't a problem. Why do we have that law introduced to the time of Moses? Because from a genetic point of view, by the time we get to Moses... There was enough corruption to make a brother and a sister producing offspring not good. Because you would, the, the, you both would share the same genetic problems and therefore you'd pass those on to your offspring. That's why God puts that rule in, but for Adam and Eve, for their offspring and so on afterwards, there was no problem. Because they were so close to the original genetic blueprint that they could have children and they weren't gonna have the problems that we would see associated today. So no problems at all. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch and he built the city. And by the way, that's not the Enoch that we know of. That's another Enoch. We'll see in a moment. And he built a city. It's the first city in scripture. Drawing people together. And called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Not calling it after the name of God or anything else, but the name of his son. He's trying to set up a legacy for himself. And unto Enoch was born Erad, and he begat Mehujael, and Mehujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. Again, there's another Lamech. We'll see another one in a short while. It's interesting, we look at the names here. Cain, his name means spear, shaft, kind of begotten, possession, all those ideas in the Hebrew. Well, Cain's son is Enoch, that means teaching, but then his son, Erad, means fugitive. 
clearly part of, this is the, the, the dynasty, the legacy that's being left. Mahujael means smitten by God. No, really he was smitten by his own disobedience. But people blame God, don't they? And then, Mithusael's naming, who is of God? In a derogatory sense. In other words, what have we got to do with God? You see how this family move away from God, just even in the naming of their children. And so we end up with Lamech, which means despairing. It's the same root as we have in the English for lament. What a terrible legacy we see as this family tree is just, effectively just goes into the darkness as they move away from the light of God. And Lamech took unto him two wives, the name of the one was Adar and the name of the other Zilhar. If her name had been El, Zilhar, El being the name of God, it would be Godzilla. But Verse 20, and Adar bore Jabal, and he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and such as have cattle. So there's a scriptural reference to camping, there you are. And verse 21, and his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. Now this is the first mention of musical instruments we have in scripture. But it doesn't seem that these are being used for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with music. But music can become a very dangerous thing. It can pull people away from God. It has done. And Zilla, uh, sorry, Zilla and she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zilla, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, Truly, Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. Well, that's great to, to state that, but because God was the one that said Cain would be avenged sevenfold, I'm not sure what right Lamech has to kind of state this, but he does anyway. Interesting, because in the book of Jude, we're told about the way of Cain. And we're seeing his descendants going down there. Verse 3, I was just looking at some key verses from Jude, just one chapter book. Verse 3 says, uh, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And verse 4 carries on, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 11 goes on and says, woe unto them. If you look at the contents, this is what it's saying. Woe unto those people that would deny the Lord Jesus Christ. For they have gone in the way of Cain, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Well, that's an apt description of Cain's family. They end up going into, in a sense, the blackness of darkness. They just, the family just falls apart from a spiritual perspective. Just move away from God into, into darkness. But in, in what sense then are we, we told here that this way of Cain is, is applied here? Well, look at these people that will come in the latter days denying our Lord Jesus Christ. Woe unto them, for they've gone in the way of Cain. Well, Cain denied blood sacrifice. He denied that which Christ would accomplish. And in that sense, even Cain back then was denying what would eventually be fulfilled by Jesus coming as a lamb whose blood would be shed because he chose to try and do it through his own work, his own efforts. You see a progression here because it starts, first of all, with the rejection of God and his word. That's the first thing. We have to be so sure and so solid on God's word because it's so easy to move off and to try our own things or to believe our own things. 
But this all started with the rejection of God's word. It goes back to that lie. Has God said? And I'm sure that Satan must have whispered in Cain's ear, did God say you really have to offer a blood sacrifice? Look at what you've produced. Isn't that better? You see, it's the has God said argument again. And then we see that trend towards urban rather than rural life. What happens when people get together? Well, they end up chatting. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if God's the centre of the conversation. But of course with the world we recognise that's not the case. And we see then the building of man's kingdom, naming his offspring, or naming cities after his offspring, and so on. And that then growing toleration of sexual excess. And we see this kind of two wives. It's the first time that occurs. And God had clearly stated that it should be one man, one woman. And then a rise in entertainment, if you could put it that way, or distractions. Things people could get into, including the music and all sorts of other things. All of that can pull people away from God. An increase in technology. Well, why would people need God now? Because look at the things we can do. Now, does this sound a little bit like the world in which we're living? Isn't that what Jews said, that in the last days these things would happen? People would go after the way of Cain? Do any of these things ring true today? Do we find a rejection of God and his word as we look at the world? Do we find this idea of kind of moving away from urban to rural life? Cities are where it all happens, aren't they? The bright lights of the city. As I said before, the only bright lights of the city you should be looking toward are the new Jerusalem. And the bright light there is Jesus Christ. But man's lights are not good. Building of man's kingdoms, a growing growing toleration of sexual excess. Does that sound a little bit like the world in which we live? A rise in entertainment. You know, we've got a whole amusement industry. What does that mean? When you prefix a word with A, it means not. It's like an atheist. A theist is somebody who believes in God. An atheist is somebody who does not believe in God. Amusement, muse, means to think. Amuse is not to think. That's what Satan's doing. He's given us a whole industry where we don't have to think anymore. I think one of the biggest problems we have, even in witnessing to people, is that people don't think. And we need to encourage them and help them start to think. An increase in technology. Well, of course, I mean, there's never been a day like the days in which we're living now. And then we see the justification of violence on the ground of our rights. As Lamech says after this situation where he's killed someone, Seemingly, it was what we may argue as manslaughter or maybe it was self-defense on his part or whatever. But he tries to justify it and then tries to put in a, a rule saying, well, if anybody hurts me now, this will happen because, oh, don't we live in a time of our rights? Everybody has rights, don't they? Apart from apparently Christians. Christians are not allowed to have rights. That's the days in which we live. It's exactly what the Bible said. We see it right from the beginning. This is the way of Cain. Jude says it's going to happen in the last days. We're here. That's what's going on right now. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For God said that she had appointed, and that's what Seth means, appointed me another seed instead of Abel, who claimed slew. And it's interesting because Adam here saying, okay, so the seed, I suspect that they both, Adam and Eve, thought that Abel was going to be the one, the deliverer. And then he's killed. And now another seed comes. And now Adam says, she's appointed another seed. So there's no, God by his grace has given us another chance. And now they're expecting, no doubt, Seth to be the one. You know, that carried all the way down through the Old Testament. 
People wondering when was the Messiah coming? Right up until the time that Jesus came. And incredibly, they missed it. They weren't ready, they weren't watching. Even though God had told them when the Messiah would come. And to say to him also there were born, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's an interesting statement because if we were to take that at face value, we've got a problem because is it saying then that Abel hadn't called on the name of the Lord? Well clearly we know he did. Or is it saying that Adam hadn't called on the name of the Lord? Well, even this verse would suggest that's not the case. Because Adam, even here, is looking forward to that deliverance, looking forward to that restoration that God had promised through the seed that was coming. No, no, I think what this verse is saying, and there's various uh, Jewish commentaries that suggest this, is this is when apostasy really started to kick in. We've got the phrase, that then began man to profane, not just call on, but to profane the name of the Lord. The, the Targum of Onkelos, which is a, a venerated translation of the Torah, it actually translates it this way, then man desisted from praying in the name of the Lord. All of these have the same idea, that it's not just calling on the name of the Lord, but it's using the Lord's name in a profane way. The Targum of Jonathan, another Jewish translation, says they surnamed their idols in the name of the Lord. Again, they are what we would now typically refer to as taking the Lord's name in vain. There's a a number of commentaries, uh, Jewish commentaries by uh, uh, Kimchi Rashi and also Jerome later on. Uh, And also Mamanides, in his commentary in the Mishnah back in the 12th century, Describes the origin of idolatry to the days of Enosh. And it's interesting because we're starting to head towards now the time of the Tower of, of Babel as we start to go down a little bit. Starting to head towards the time of the flood and the following the flood obviously we get to the Tower of Babel. And even at this point men start to move away from, I just find this incredible. Given all that they knew, all that was known at that time about God, about his creation, that people could move away from him. But, you know, is it any less surprising today? You remember the the situation, the account we have in Luke 16, of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is in Hades and he's in torment, and he says, look, send someone back from the dead to tell my brothers to warn them. And the response is given. They have Moses and the prophets. If they'll not listen to them, they're not going to listen, even if one were to rise from the dead. And of course, one did rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And we have a world that will still not listen. One of the most amazing verses, or a couple of verses in the Bible, is in Revelation chapter 6. As God is starting to pour out his wrath on this world, people start to recognize that this wrath is coming from the Lord. Verse 15 of Revelation 6 says, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man, that's everybody by the way, <laughs> this covers everyone, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, I don't understand 
why at that point people are not falling to their knees and repenting other than the facts of sin other than the fact of the hardness in our hearts you know and it doesn't matter what God does there is still that hardness there and like Cain he didn't want to go to God in the terms that God has said he wanted to do things his way we've got a world that's just like that well we could carry on into to chapter 5 but I'm going to save that for, for next week because there's uh, some exciting discoveries there some of you know already what's coming um, but we'll look at that next week Let's uh, close in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, just so many lessons for us here. Father, thank you first of all for the prophet Abel. Lord, the message that he gives us, Lord, that faith and trusting, looking forward to that sacrifice that would one day be made to atone for sin once and for all. Thank you, Lord, that in so many ways Abel prefigures Jesus and shows us a glimpse of what that coming Messiah would be like. For us now, we have the the benefit of looking back and seeing these things fulfilled. But Father, help us also to see the contrast uh, and the, the, the horror that sin can wreak in our lives. Lord, we see one line go on to bring the Messiah. We see another line go on to the blackness of darkness forever, moving away from you. And it all started with just such a simple wanting to do things our way. Well, Father, help us to be humble enough to die to self and to live to you, to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, this message is as apparent and as real and as important today as it was for Cain and Abel themselves. And so, Father, just help us to to learn these things. And even as Christians, Lord, we still have a tendency to follow after the flesh, to follow after the things of this world. Oh, Lord, just rid us of that, we pray, and give us a hunger and a thirst for you and for your word. Lord, be with us as we go from here this morning. Keep us close to you, we pray. Keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For it is in his name we ask these things. Amen.